Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Canon Cast, a weekly podcast from the Canon. I'm your host, PD, and this week I am joined by a special guest. He is the author of the upcoming book, Hockey Tactics 2022, The Playbook, Jack Hahn. Welcome, Jack. How's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, I just watched the first period of uh, Jackets against Florida, so it's uh, things are definitely going on. <laughs> They're definitely going, yeah, that's that's for sure. So we have, we have a lot to talk about in terms of the Jackets system. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you. Um, so obviously you are this expert on hockey tactics, which is a, a topic that I find fascinating and something that I don't know nearly enough about. So what got you into hockey? What got you pursuing this particular career path in, in this part of the game of really focusing on the X's and O's of hockey? So just to give you a little background on myself, um, I was actually born in China, and my parents and I immigrated to Montreal, Canada when I was uh, six years old. And I grew up playing hockey in Montreal, and I was always like like one of the worst kids on my <laughs> team because I started later, and like my parents didn't want to pay for like whether it's like power skating or like additional like skill sessions, and I didn't play in the summer. And when when I got to about high school, uh, basically my parents you know, they let me play for the school team, but they basically just never showed up to my games. And I would, I would take the bus with my hockey bag in the morning, like an hour and a half. And then after my games, I would, you know, come back home with my hockey bag, you know, take an hour and a half. And during those long kind of pretty lonely bus rides, um, the the overall question that, that I kept posing myself was like, why was I so bad at hockey? <laughs> and, and so, so this is like, kind of like the, the Joker origin story because I just like when I was growing up, like there was nobody around to tell me what I was doing wrong, like not even my coaches. So later on, like I, I coached high school hockey when I was uh, studying business and I was pretty much set on having just a normal job. And I, I realized at some point that like having a normal job wasn't that satisfying. So I, I, I really, you know, kind of put in an effort to try to have a career in sports. And what ended up happening was um, uh, I, I first started as a writer. So much like much like yourself, like I would blog and whether it's about hockey or tennis. And then eventually I got a job as a web writer for the Montreal Canadiens official website. 
And throughout that year, obviously, you, you get to see the team practice and play games. And I got to travel with the team on the charter um, during the 13-14 season, which is, you know, you really kind of learn the ins and outs of pro hockey. And then that experience, it, it, it didn't, it, it left me kind of unsatisfied in a way that, like, I figured, okay, well, I've, I've written about the game. Now I, I actually want to influence it, you know, by coaching. So uh, I spent three years uh, as the analytics uh, coordinator slash video coach for the McGill University women's team, which is uh, one of the one of the best Canadian university programs uh, historically. Sure. We had a lot of success, learned a lot, um, worked uh, alongside Peter Smith, who was an assistant coach with the Canadian national team. So a lot of the tactical kind of the fundamentals I learned from him. And then, you know, after three good years there, I got uh, hired by Kyle Dubas to go work for Toronto Maple Leafs. So over there, I did a bunch of stuff. I worked in player development, um, did some scouting. And then my last year there, I was actually the video coach, uh, was the assistant coach for the Toronto Marlies. And, and actually I got to coach against uh, Cleveland uh, quite a few times. So, I kind of been around the block and uh, after I left Toronto, I, I realized there wasn't really anybody in the public public sphere who was breaking down the, the tactical side of the game because a, a lot of what I saw was kind of old school, you know, people in the game being very dismissive and saying, mm -hmm. well, you know, you didn't play the game or you didn't coach the game or, but they didn't actually do a good job of explaining to you what was actually happening. Sure. And so since I, since I stopped coaching uh, at the AHL level, I've actually been able to make a living just uh, doing whatever I want. And then once in a while, write a few things about how hockey works from my point of view. And, and luckily people have really enjoyed what I've had to say. And I was able to help a lot of people. Yeah, that's great. And, and I, I do feel like there is a, a void that your writing is filling. Um, Cause I'm someone who has come to hockey fairly late in life. And when I started writing about five and a half years ago, um, I was initially drawn to all of the hockey stats. You know, I was familiar with stats from like baseball and things like that. So that was an easy point of entry. Um, but when it came to the actual X's and O's of hockey, it's something that I still don't know. I've learned more just from watching the game, but still there's so many times where the game just feels chaotic and unplanned even if i know that it isn't and so it's hard to know where to start in terms of learning what's actually going on so that's why something like your book with all these diagrams and everything it's super super helpful um so to talk about your book here a little bit so you have broken down the schemes for the 2021 2022 season for all 32 nhl teams which just seems like a, a mind-boggling task to me um what kind of how much how much time did that take and how many games per team did you end up breaking down to come up with this so uh there there's a few elements so it, as you were saying hockey is a really fast and chaotic sport so a lot of times you're not looking for exact plays but you're looking for patterns or you're looking for like i would almost say like the vibe that that a team is giving off like the kind of things that they want to do as a collective um so, you know, for me, I've been doing this for about eight years now. So it's certainly, um, there's not many people out there in the public sphere who who have that kind of experience plus the background info. So that really helps. But 
the other thing that helps is generally speaking, uh, teams don't tend to change the way they play all that much year over year. And also teams in the NHL tend to resemble one another. So if you look at my book, which is, which is called Hockey Tactics 2022, the playbook, I have seven slides per team mm-hmm. covering, you know, whether it's like ozone play, neutral zone and defensive zone. Um, and generally speaking, the teams are, they're pretty similar with a few differences. And the way that I would explain this is if you, if you imagine a scale of one to 10 with one being the most passive and 10 being the most aggressive NHL teams, they tend to be between six and four. Mm-hmm. You might have a few threes, you might have a few sevens, but that's just generally like, it, it's pretty tightly grouped. Um, you know, we talk about the NHL being a parity driven league uh, talent wise or salary wise. And, and it's, it's the same way tactics wise. Like if you go to Europe, if you look at the game over there, if you look at the women's game, you're going to see different things, but in the NHL, like everything tends to be kind of middle of the road. Interesting. So yeah, that, that was actually going to be, that was a question one of my writers had was, is there that much difference between even say like a Bruce Boudreaux all offense team and like a Barry Trotz all defense team? It, would those be the extremes or are those even still pretty, pretty common, pretty similar? It, it depends what you're talking about. So I, I mean, obviously this is a, a Jackets uh, podcast. Uh, so, so let's, let's talk about Columbus. Mm-hmm. Okay. And w- when you first reached out, I think th- your first question is like, what, what was the difference between the, uh, the torts era blue jackets versus the current era blue jackets. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll talk to you from the perspective of that, uh, that Columbus Toronto playing series. Yeah. Right. A couple of years ago. And that was, that series happened a couple of months after I left Toronto and so, you know, like I had coached against Cleveland that year. So I was pretty, you know, pretty, I would say definitely aware of what Toronto was doing, but certainly I would, I had, a, had an idea of what, uh, what Columbus was trying to do as well. And the biggest thing that I, that I uh, pointed out at that time was Columbus's neutral zone four check. Yeah. So they didn't play like a full on neutral zone trap, but it was very passive. It was a one-two-two, but essentially, I, I kind of compared that formation to, to an icebreaker. If you go on my my Substack newsletter, like I like w- before that series happened, I kind of made that comparison because essentially a one-two-two, which is what almost every team uses um, at some stage, they what that formation does is it wants to force you wide. And then eventually you get so wide that you you basically run out of space and then you mm-hmm. get crammed against the boards. And um, Columbus's way of doing it was pretty passive and they basically let you skate into them. Um, and the, the, the problem that it, it caused when it's, when it's executed correctly is now the enemy doesn't know where to attack you because they're essentially creating their own problem by skating right into you. Hmm. And, and essentially, that's how uh, Columbus, you know, extended and then won against both Tampa and Toronto in successive years, which is, uh, you know, these are two very creative, very rush-based offensive teams. And when you when you kind of let them skate into you, all of a sudden, they kind of get confused and you're able to force some mistakes. And then, you know, mentally, it affects them. And then now you have a chance as the underdog. 
So that that, that was the the biggest takeaway from the Torts era Blue Jackets for me. Yeah, well, and and I do feel like even between 2019 and 2020, there were some differences. Um, obviously, with in 2019, there was a lot more offensive talent on the team. So when it came to their the offensive chances that they did get, they were able to do a lot more with it because they had Artemi Panarin and Matt Duchesne and guys like that. Um, I also feel like in 2019, they were a lot more aggressive on the forecheck. Um, I remember Josh Anderson, specifically in that Tampa series, was a one-man wrecking ball. And Tampa just did not know how to handle him because he was constantly bothering them in their own zone. In 2020, with a lot of those guys gone, obviously Panarin was gone, Anderson was hurt, uh, and Bobrovsky was gone. So I think Torch changed the system that year to help out the goalies. And so it was very much like, like you said, it was just like, let the, let the other team come in, let them come through the zone, uh, but just force them out to the side. Um, and I feel like it was a scheme that was meant to make up for the lack of talent. And obviously against a team like Toronto, who was significantly more talented, it was able to be enough of a factor to swing the balance in their favor. Yeah. And, and you talked about how, you know, it, like there was less talent against Toronto, but, and then, you know, the goalies, uh, well, I guess both goalies, like they, they, they did, they did terrific. And yeah. a lot of it was just because off the rush, Toronto couldn't get anything going. So right. a lot of their shots were off the cycle. There were point shots. There were lower percentage shots and in yes. the playoffs, um, you know, the if the, the other goalie doesn't let in those low percentage uh, shot attempts, then you're going to have a hard time. Right. Yeah. So um, in terms of then going from the Torts era to Larson, have you seen any differences in what the Jackets are doing or is, again, still pretty much the same system? So the the biggest shift, I would say, is... The, the spacing between the players because mm-hmm. what um, the the takeaway that I had coaching against Cleveland in the AHL and generally speaking, you know, AHL teams and NHL teams play a pretty similar system. Right. Um, is that uh, Cleveland really wanted to use the strong side of the ice. They, they just kind of wanted to overpower you uh, kind of up and down the rink as opposed to, you know, using lateral passes to, to find width. Uh, so similar idea with, with Columbus now, but really they, they make an effort to stretch the ice. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't love it for them just because there's so much distance between the forwards and the Ds. And when it works out, you can get a quick kind of odd man rush or, or a, a one-on-one or a two-on-two. But when it doesn't work, like like the fourth goal that Florida scored, it was off of a, a neutral zone turnover. And then, there's no chance for the D's to gap up and to stop the rush uh, just because there's, there's so much space between the forwards and the D's. So it's almost like, you know, you want to create offense by sending these forwards deep, but you're doing it in such a greedy way that mm. basically your success rate is going to be very low and it, the puck is going to boomerang back at you more often than not. Yeah. Is, is there another team in the league that, has a similar approach to that and maybe a team that has been more successful with that approach. So, so I think the most successful team, at least in, in recent memory for me is actually uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs under Mike Babcock. We, we played mm. a very similar 
system where there was a lot of uh, stretch passes off of uh, whether it's D zone faceoff wins, whether it's you know after we make a stop in the D zone, whether it's on, on a quick counterattack. Um, you know, we call it we we call it pushing the pace, which is you're trying to get behind the D's and push them out of the zone. And basically, the idea is if you get the puck back in your zone, you want the the, the wingers or at the the first two fours, you want them pushing out, and then you want to push the D's back so that you can break out almost like three on three, and then eventually you get to the neutral zone, and then you're able to find a four with some speed. So in theory, this is great because it's. You know, it's a really offensive, a really attacking way to play. But in practice, it just leads to a lot of broken plays and you're just punting the puck very often. Yeah, and that that definitely, that rings a bell for sure uh, for for what we're doing. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, So... Let's say tomorrow that Jarmo Kekalainen and Brad Larson brought you into their office um, and just told you, okay, fix it. What what tweaks would you make uh, given the roster that they have? Oof. Um, you know what? If I had a silver bullet, I'd keep it for myself. <laughs> but, but so okay, so, so here's the thing. Like when I watch a team and, and I talk about kind of you know, analyzing teams through vibes, right? Yeah. Because, you know, hockey is a really messy game. And, you know, I, I'm giving you seven slides per team, but obviously there's there's millions of possible sure. permutations. of. So the, the, the one big question I have when I watch Columbus play is like, what are they trying to accomplish here, right? Yeah. So there's there's basically, I would say, two really big considerations when you're putting together uh, – a system or a team's way of playing, which is one, you want to maximize what you have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then two, you want to cultivate either things that you don't have or cultivate kind of, you know, your your younger players in a way that's going to maximize their potential down the road. Sure. So certainly depending on where you are in your in your team's cycle of contention, you know, maybe it does make sense to play, you know, 
at more offensive or play in a way that's going to create more mistakes, but then you, you recognize that and you accept that and you, you, you accept it as a cost of doing business and you realize that it's going to help you maybe two or three years down the road. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a team like the LA Kings, like that's where they're at right now. Um, if you look at a team like Florida, well, they were, they were that maybe last year, but now you see that they've quickly become a, a real contender. Sure. So, so things have worked really well for them. Um, if you look at Toronto, like the first, the year that Keith took over, like for, for a few months, it was kind of that. Yeah. So you're basically investing in the future. So my question in general, and, and you would know this way better than I do, but what's the point of what the Jackers are doing? Is it to maximize their existing players or is it because they got players coming up who play this way and they want to maximize that? That's a great question. Um, and a lot of our writers and readers have been questioning lately, like, you know, what, what is the plan? I think this is certainly a transitional year. You know, I don't think there was any illusion that this would be a contending team or, you know, even a playoff team. So the fact that they are, you know, fifth place in the division and at fo hockey 500 is honestly probably better than what we expected. Um, I think it's a season for just figuring things out. Um, and probably more so on a individual level than on a team level. Um, you have, you know, getting young guys like Cole Sillinger and Igor Chinnikov, getting them reps and seeing what they've got. Um, and then guys like Line A, Domi, and maybe even Nyquist, like figuring out, all right, are these guys that are sticking around or do they have trade value? That kind of thing. Um, you know, Line A especially, it's a question of, you know, is this a guy that we want to invest in long-term? Can he be a long-term piece? Can he be, you know, what he was touted to be coming into his draft? Or is he not that kind of player that would be worth $7 million a year for a long-term contract, you know? And I think at this point, he, it's still inconclusive. It's just been a, a weird season for him. Um, so I think it's trying to figure out what they have in these various players. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like it, needs to be a developmental year where we actually see the young players getting better. And, and that too, I think has been a mixed bag because I think in sometimes we've seen growth and sometimes we've seen regression. And I don't know if some of that's just kind of the natural process with a young player that they're going to have their ups and downs. I, I, I don't, I can't tell enough to know if the coaches are, are actively helping them or, or hurting them in that regard. Um, but that's, I think it's, yeah, they're not, I don't know that they're trying to install any kind of system like that. I think it's more just about evaluating the players, but I'm not sure that Larson is putting all the players in the best position to succeed. I think some players have, have blossomed under him, but others have been kind of stagnating and that's, uh, that's been a little disappointing and frustrating to see. Okay, so so I'm so I'm going to talk more generally here. Sure. But, but here here's a secret. Okay, and you, you'll know this secret if you worked in the NHL or at the AHL level, but but you might not if you're just a, a fan or or like a player. Yeah. Is that it, it's absolutely a real thing that certain players get worse the longer they play in the NHL. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And 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 you see it, and and you suspect that you know the team hasn't done a good job developing them, or whatever reason they've lost their confidence, or whatever. But 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 let me explain to you why this actually happens, and, and it's not because you get physically weaker, because obviously mm -hmm. you know NHL uh, players are the best conditioned hockey players in the world. 
uh, it's not because, you know, it might be because, you know, you're, you're under a lot of stress, and you're not sleeping well or, or whatever. That, that certainly can happen. But a lot of times what happens to a player if, you know, he's otherwise mentally or physically healthy, but he, he's still declining is, is because he loses his feel for where the edge is. So what I mean is like when we talk about playing on the edge, like we, we often think about like physical play, right? Like you, yeah. you want to go in just hard enough to hit the guy, but not to take a penalty or, you know, you want to use your stick uh, in the right way without tripping the guy. Like that's playing on the edge. Well, there is the, this edge exists when you play with the puck as well. So what, mm-hmm. what I mean is, is you want to create just enough of an advantage for your team, but without turning the puck over and going for too much. Yeah, and what happens is if you look at how you know Torts's era ended, you play such a passive system defensively, and you're so tight all the time, and you never play with the puck, and you're always dumping the puck out, or you're always dumping the puck in. You lose your sense of where that edge is, and then all of a sudden, you might be physically able to make a play, but you don't have the feel of how much you can go for in a given situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. And ultimately, as a player, you know, we call it confidence, mm-hmm. but but that's what it is. And th- this thing, it, like, it's especially, I would say, uh, serious for defensemen, because a lot of times the defensemen, if, if you go back to retrieve a puck in your zone, if, you know, if you just kind of dump the puck out, um, obviously, it's it's a turnover, right? Yeah. But if you want to retrieve the puck and skate it out and you lose it, you go for too much, the, the puck is in the back of your net. So either way, whether if you if you go for too much or too little, the puck ends up in the back of your net. Yeah. Right. But the so, so now the question is like, where is that edge where you, you can maximize, you know, your future value? And that's going to look different for Wierenski or, or Boquist or Bayrider or Pete, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be a little bit different for everyone. But if you don't get those game reps, if you lose touch with where your edge is at any given moment, you're generally going to want to be safer than what's optimal. And then that leads to, you know, not controlling play. That leads to being hemmed near a zone. That leads to icing the puck or uh, flipping the puck out or turning it over in the neutral zone. This definitely, this definitely rings true with um, the Tortorella era. Um, because he was not a coach that tolerated mistakes. And I feel like a lot of guys would play tentative because they were so afraid of making a mistake. Because if they did, if they made a mistake, they could find themselves stapled to the bench because that was just the way that Torts did things. Um, and I agree with you that, um, you know, I'd much rather see the players be, you know, able to make some mistakes if they are trying to make a good play out of it. And I think that was a reason why it was, you know, it was time to move on. Um, it's also why I was a little disappointed that they went with an internal hire because I think it sounds like from some of the things you're saying that if they had brought in uh, a, a coach with maybe a, a kind of different approach, um, that it would just be a fresh start for all of the returning players, that they would have a new way of looking at the game and it could unlock new things from them. Was that kind of one thing you're touching on? So, okay, so so we go from Tortorella to Larson, and, and we see Columbus now. They're stretching the ice. They're sending guys deep, uh, almost like a soccer kind of long ball kind of philosophy. And, the you know, in Toronto, we called it playing fast, 
you know, because we want to send people down us when we, we want to send the puck up ice and, and, and try to create th- these advantages. And I, I was actually, uh, I was exchanging DMS with uh, Frank Carrado the other day who, who was in Toronto a little bit before me or uh, his last, his last year might've been my first, but you know, we, we kind of, we were both familiar with the, the kind of tactical philosophy then. And he said, you know, as a player, when your coach tells you to play fast, all of a sudden you get really tight as well because you feel like you don't have time and you feel like you got to be in a hurry all the time. So we've gone from, you know, we've gone from players who are tight because they're asked to play shutdown defense and mistakes are not tolerated to players who are still tight, but because they're asked to make a play at a pace that they're not comfortable with. And it works really well for some teams like Carolina does it super well. Like if if we talk about playing fast, uh, they're kind of the, the, the reference point in the league right now. But then you look at uh, Toronto or you look at Tampa or you look at, um, uh, you know, like even Colorado at times, like the way that they get you is not by playing fast necessarily. They, they get you when they change speeds. So when they go mm. from fast to slow or slow to fast. And so, so a lot of times you have these very talented players who like they like to play slow because that's how they get you. Like they suck you in and all of a sudden they find a play through you and then you're beat. Right. Yeah. And so, so when you have a coach that's very kind of into like playing fast, all of a sudden that playing slow aspect, maybe it gets a little bit neglected. And for a lot of offensive players, um, and, and I wonder if that's kind of what happened to Bjorkstrand because like when you look at his underlying numbers, they used to be better mm-hmm. than they are now. But when a lot of these players, like when you ask them to play at one speed, even if it's a high speed, uh, they don't do as well. Interesting. Yeah. And I, and I feel like Bjorkstrand, he's, he's my, one of my favorite players. And I think he's the kind of guy that, yeah, could play at multiple levels, like what you're talking about. Um, because he's a guy that has, you know, the defensive side of his game developed a lot under Tortorella. He can play that 200-foot game. He can slow it down. He can check. But if you have the kind of game where you're really pushing it on offense, he has the skill to do that as well. I don't. He doesn't have the, um, you know, the breakaway speed necessarily, but he skates well enough. But mostly that, you know, the passing and the shooting is up there. So, yeah, that's an interesting theory, not one that I'd seen presented before for why he might be struggling now. That's interesting. Um, you know, I... Another another example that comes to mind is uh, Seth Jones, and you know there was so much talk about his game and how it had declined. And again, a lot of the hockey stats people were just looking at their numbers and like, oh wow, Seth Jones is bad now. But I always felt like, well, no, no, that doesn't tell the whole story, you know. Because one thing I would point out is, well, his numbers changed because the role he was playing in changed because all of a sudden the Jackets went from being a positive possession team to being a team that was passive and allowing zone entries and things like that. But he was doing what he was asked to do. Um, And I thought, well, yeah, if you get him into a new system in Chicago, you know, he's likely to have a bounce back season because he'll be asked to be doing different things. And from the looks of it, especially once they, they made their coaching change um, that has opened up his game a little bit. So I actually wrote about Jones uh, over the years, uh, first for my newsletter, but then for one of my uh, eBooks, the Hockey Tactics 2021. I, I had a whole chapter on him, 
And the thing with Seth Jones is you watch him, like obviously he's big. He's got a mm-hmm. he's got a long reach. He has a great defensive stick, very good shot, moves the puck really well. Um, you know, ma- makes makes good reads, especially with the puck. But the thing that he struggles in is the number one thing that you have to have as a defenseman, which is you have to be able to match speeds with your the threat that's attacking you. Yeah. And basically Seth Jones, for me, he gets a failing grade in that. Okay. Okay. So great with the puck, you know, really good shot, uh, really great defensive stick. But if you're attacking him with speed, Seth Jones struggles. And the way to maximize Seth Jones is for him never to be targeted one-on-one on a rush. Hmm. So if you think back to Tortorella's, you know, one, two, two, uh, it was a four-man defensive box. So Seth Jones was seldom exposed one-on-one. Right. If you look at Chicago this year, where he was a total dumpster fire the first 20 games or whatever until Carlton got fired, um, you know, they played an aggressive one-two-two where he was defending a lot one-on-one, and mm-hmm. he, he was getting lit up. And now, um, under uh, Derek King, they, they've been more passive. They've kind of gone back to that four-man box that, that uh, Columbus used under Torts. And all of a sudden, oh, well, Jones is doing a lot better. Well, yeah, because we've systematically made an adjustment so that his biggest flaw doesn't get targeted as often. Yeah. Oh, interesting. One more question about coaching. Shortly before training camp, the Jackets had to make a assistant coaching change. Uh, they let go Sylvain Lefebvre, and they promoted Steve McCarthy from their AHL staff to the Columbus staff to coach the defense. How much of a how disruptive would that have been to happen at that point and to bring in a coach still relatively green? Um, could that be a reason why the defense is struggling, or would a lot of that be falling on the head coach anyway because it's his system? Actually, it's kind of a funny story because I I used to play hockey with uh, Sylvain's son Jordan, mm. a re- really nice guy. But so so Jordan was uh, he was a post graduate student at McGill, and he would organize like the weekly staff hockey games. Uh, really nice guy. Never met Sylvain. Uh, you know, he coached uh, Montreal's AHL affiliate, right. uh, and basically the team was not very good when he was <laughs> the head coach. Uh, and then he was the assistant coach for San Diego. And, and I think the team was, was not terribly good. Um, so, so I, I don't know. Like it's, it's one of those things where if the way that your season's going re- is resting on an assistant coach, uh, that probably means that your process is not as sound as it could be. Uh, but you know, um, I'm just an outsider speaking there, but yes, it did do the, uh, to the assistants, how much input do they have on scheme or are they more coaching technique or, or does that just depend on the coach himself? Uh, it, it depends on the coaching staff. Some coaches, uh, some head coaches give their assistants more authority or more leeway. And generally, uh, I would say the assistant coach's biggest job is to be close to the players and uh, give feedback. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times the coaches, the head coaches have a lot on their plates. You know, yeah. they're, they may be overseeing, you know, how the team is playing overall, but they also have media to do. They have a lot of, you know, conversation that needs to happen with the GM and so on. So a lot of the actual like 
going over video with the players or talking to the players or, you know, sometimes even, you know, uh, power playing PK, like those things would fall on the assistants. Okay. Well, and in that case, I think actually McCarthy could be a good fit because, you know, he was playing in the AHL as recently as five years ago and was even a teammate with some of these guys on the monsters. So he could relate to them in that, you know, for such a young team to have a young coach on the staff, uh, I can see that as an advantage. Um, one last question uh, to get back to kind of general theory here. Um, when when building a roster and building a scheme, is it more important to have the best players or is it more important to have um, the best scheme for the players that you have? Um, should you be bringing in players that fit the scheme or should you be more adjusting your scheme to fit the players that you have? Well, I think it has to be a mix of both. I mean, you know, when you're building a team, you're, you're basically, you, you have certain things that you value, mm -hmm. but trying to get value is also important, right? Like if a good player is available, um, you should be able to be flexible. Yeah. Right. And, you know, like the, the thing with a team, let's, once again, like the Florida Panthers was they went and got a lot of guys who, who skated fast and mm -hmm. played well off the rush. Uh, and, and that's up front. So we're thinking about guys like Carter Verhage or Anthony Duclair or, um, you know, even, even Mason Marchman is one of those guys now. Um, Sam Reinhardt, um, Sam, ben, Sam Bennett, who, you know, didn't get to play off the rush all that much in Calgary. And all of a sudden you see him coming out of his shell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it definitely helps to have a clear idea of how you want to play. And then you can maybe find those players that are being either undervalued or players who are being a little bit stifled and you can, you can bring them in uh, on the back end or looking for defensemen that skate really well, that like to get involved in the rush, but also defend speed really well. So mm -hmm. guys like Forsling, guys like Nudivara, um, who, who you would know well, yeah. um, not, not big guys necessarily, but guys who, who could match, match speeds and you know angle off the puck carrier and so on and so forth and and it's it's been working really well for them right yeah so they've had to make some adjustments tactically because they don't have a lot of big guys on on defense except for uh eggblatt mm -hmm. uh and you know uh certainly gudas is, is a tough guy but aside from that like you know they're they play more of a zone defense because they're looking for these two-on-one pressure opportunities so it you know, I, I think as a coach, if you if you do your job well, then you're covering up for a lot of the flaws that um, your GM is kind of bringing into the team. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I think if you can, you can kind of it's almost like uh, a chef um, on a food truck. Like you want to make something del delicious out of imperfect, imperfect ingredients. Right? Yeah. So So it's a little bit like that, I would say. Well, and it's and you you know you got me thinking about what we discussed earlier with the you know system where the forwards are kind of cheating up and being really aggressive. I feel like, um, especially when it comes to the draft, that Yarmo Kekalainen has been targeting a lot of um, fast, highly skilled forwards. So it feels like maybe he's looking for guys that will thrive in that kind of thing, where when they get the puck they're going to make good things happen within the zone and they'll just maybe live with whatever 
issues might happen in between the forwards and the defense in that case. If you've got guys with shots like Chinikov or with skill like Kent Johnson, who's going to be joining next year, guys like that. Yeah, and, and the, the only thing I would say is that you can't forget forget the guys who maybe don't have the speed or don't like being the tip of the spear. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you want your Zach Wierenski's getting the puck in space underneath the play. You want yeah. Adam Bolquist, you know, jumping on the weak side and getting the puck um, on the breakout. You want Patrick Laine kind of slowing down, getting the puck in a shooting pocket and then scoring from there, right? Yeah. So once again, it's it's not just a matter of playing fast and pushing up ice. It's also changing up the tempo because, you know, honestly, Columbus, they have they really struggle controlling the tempo. So even though right. they want to play fast, they have trouble controlling the tempo. And when you can't control the tempo, you can't control the game. And when you can't control the game, it's hard to win consistently. Okay, I led the real one last thing, because I know we wanted to talk about Patrick Lani because we talked about this during the Montreal game as we were DMing. Um, so you were confused by Line being now on the right side of the power play. Can you go into more about why that confuses you or why you think that's a bad idea? Well, I mean, like, Line is like a top two player in the world on his one-timer side. Like, why, mm-hmm. why is he on the right? And, 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 like, I was looking at it, and, like, he's actually an underrated passer. Like, he actually yeah. plays a right side pretty well. Like, he's getting assists in the power play. But it's like, who, who is he passing the puck to? Yeah, so I, I have a feeling that because, remarkably, I mean, the power play in the early part of the year was actually doing really well, and he was part of that but he was not himself scoring goals on the power play. And he's been struggling a little bit on the power play since he came back from injury. And it seems to me like that move by Larson was just a way to like mixing things up to see if that gets things going. Um, Just as, you know, doing the same thing wasn't working. And when they first made that change, I felt like he was actually getting shots off better than he was on the left side even though left side is where he's, you know, made a lot of money in his career. Um, for some reason, he was just getting the fielding, the passes cleaner and getting shots off quicker from the right circle. And it's, which I wouldn't necessarily have expected because with him being right-handed shot and Wierenski being left-handed shot, you would have thought that line on the left would be getting those pucks more cleanly, but that wasn't the case <laughs> now. So who knows? Yeah. So, so the thing with having a righty on the right side is, uh, as you said, it's easier to get the puck because when you catch a puck on your forehand, the puck is protected. Yeah. So the, the penalty killer is not going to poke it away from you. But sure. the problem now becomes like you don't have a one-timer and your shooting angle is not that great. So the, the one thing maybe Columbus, like like a bit of a bit of free advice, if they want to take it, they don't have sure. to. But um, if they want to start off lining on the right, like I don't hate that because that gets you feeling the puck early in the power play, which is a good thing. But then as soon as you have one shot attempt, flip the formation so that lining ends up on the one timer. So now that you have a bit of feel, now that your power play unit's set up, you got a bit of rhythm, maybe you win a retrieval race, all of a sudden lining is on the left side, you slip the puck to them and it's the back of the net. And and by cycling too, you you put the penalty kill on their heels because they don't know who's where and they're trying to adjust to do guys in different positions and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so maybe maybe you can have the best of both worlds. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds good. I, I would love that. Uh, all right. So, uh, Jack, where can people find you online? Where can they find your writings? 
So uh, the best place to keep up with what I'm doing is on Twitter. So my handle is J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. And then once you're on there, you can uh, follow my tweets. Obviously, you can sign up for a free uh, hockey tactics newsletter. And then I also have a bunch of eBooks. If you're a player, if you're a coach, if you're a hockey parent, uh, uh, basically, it's a really cheap way for you to steal my brain for a couple (laughs) of hours. And I, I can say it is it is well worth it. I've uh, it's, I really enjoy following your Twitter account, and I've been getting the newsletter. And as I said, just started diving into your book this weekend, and it's uh, it's just a treasure trove of information. I love it. So uh, thanks again, Jack, for your time. We really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for having me. And, and remember, you know, tactics. It's, it's not rocket science. It's just hockey. <laughs> I love it. For more content from the Canon, go to jacketscanon.com. You can also follow The Canon on Facebook and on Twitter at CBJ Canon. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is the song Green Eyes by Angela Perley and the Howlin' Moons. Go to AngelaPerley.com for more music and show dates.